Welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. There's nothing more central to the gospel than the cross and the atonement, but in recent years, traditional views of the cross have come increasingly into question. One view that has gained increasing prominence is that the cross was a form of cosmic child abuse. Well, joining me now to discuss this important topic is Dr. Gary Williams, Director of the Pastors Academy in London. Dr. Williams, Gary, hi, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Brent. It's great to be with you. Oh, to see you again after many years. Yes. Should we declare that you taught me 20 years ago? So, but, but <laughs> Not we the also, 20 years bit. <laughs> no, but we, we also add that none of the mistakes that are likely to happen in this interview from my end are due to you. <laughs> <laughs> I will be scrutinizing your questions. <laughs> oh, okay. Where did these, I'm going to call them new ideas, but I suspect they're probably not new ideas. Where did these new ideas about the cross and the atonement come from? Yes, they're very much not new ideas, really, mm. I think. they. The, the precise articulation of them may be new. The, the, the kind of child abuse label that, that's used is a, is a relatively new thing, I think. But the underlying thinking or the underlying critique of the orthodox position uh, is not new and indeed some of the major alternatives that are put in place of it are not new either the critique had its greatest exponent in faustus Socinus or sozzini who was an opponent of most things orthodox at, in the latter half of the 16th century a radical reformer so a lot of the critique stems from him, and it is astonishing the kind of continuity that you can see from him on all the way down to contemporary popular writers who've, who've probably not heard of him. And then the, the alternative theories, I think, I'm not sure where they all come from, but a number of them, the ones that are deployed now, resemble accounts given in the 19th century. The 19th century was a, a, a booming century for, for books on the atonement. I mean, an amazing number of books written on the atonement with all sorts of different theories. And I think some of the theories that we see popularized today are very close to those, though, again, that's not to say that they've, they've been discovered in 19th century books, but, but the, there's a kind of logic, the same, the same logic in, in some of the old alternatives and the new alternatives leads people to the same places, I think. So why the cosmic child abuse idea? What, what's happening behind that? Why are, people, why are people claiming that Jesus' death was a form of cosmic child abuse? It's very, very strong language. It is, and it's a, it's a curious claim uh, that almost invites, well, I think does invite us to scrutinize ourselves. So one of the things I think it's important that we do in, in thinking about the atonement and critiques of the orthodox view of the atonement is, is not always to rush to saying, well, this is these people are wrong and this is why, but also to pause to say, how is it that you could think that anyone believes that it is that? <laughs> so could it be the case that some of our preaching of the cross has sounded like we are describing a father getting hold of an unwilling son and inflicting penal suffering on him? Now, I have to say, I've never heard preaching that sounds like that. And I've, I've moved in you know, conservative evangelical circles that preach a penal substitutionary atonement uh, for for all of my Christian life, really, since I was converted in, in my late teens. But but we should ask the question, and you can you can see how you would get there if, for example, if you have a weak doctrine of the Trinity behind your doctrine of the atonement, so that it isn't clear that the atonement is the the work of the one God, 
done in accord with the one will of God. If you begin to speak as if the Father and the Son might have different wills, um, then you can see how you could get to the point of the Father inflicting something on an unwilling Son. And then that's getting close to, to some kind of abusive relationship. So that, that's, my that's my charitable answer, okay? That's, <laughs> that's me saying, let's look in the mirror first. And then, and then the, the uncharitable, I'm not, I don't want to characterize my answer as uncharitable, but, but, but the, the sort of, but you might say, more cynical or more critical answer is that some of the, the folk who, who take this objection up don't like the idea of the wrath of God. So, so if, you, if you look, you know, why is it that people don't like penal substitutionary atonement? It's because they don't like the, they like neither the penal nor the substitutionary aspect. They don't like the idea that there is a, a penalty that must be imposed upon sin, that God necessarily, given his own holy nature, punishes sin. That's a big part of it, I think. And then they don't like the idea that he could do that 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 could happen to somebody who hadn't committed the sin. They don't like the substitution aspect. But I think often the driving one is the, is the unease about the wrath of God. So I think I want to, first of all, let's look in the mirror. Have we said things in a way that suggests the unwillingness of the Son if we've not framed the atonement in the context of the doctrine of the Trinity and the inseparable operations of the persons? But then also, you, I think you also have to need a, have a more critical approach which says, well, hold on a minute, there may be some fundamental problems with the opponents of this doctrine not liking what the Bible teaches, but, you know, the uncomfortable, the things we all find uncomfortable about the wrath of God in Scripture. Yes, the way I've had it presented to me over the years of teaching this, uh, or trying to teach it, and having people rush up to me and say, I don't like your language about blood, I don't like your language about sacrifice, I don't like, I don't like all this evangelical atonement stuff, it's been presented to me. Yeah. And the claim often is backed up by the comment, oh, a God of love wouldn't do such a thing to his own son. But my question is, are God's love and his justice incompatible? Right. And, and also, going back to the Trinity point, it's not that the God of love does it to his son, as if his son is an, is, has this unwillingly inflicted upon him. This is the son's own will, mm. because mm. the son has one will with the father. Uh, so, so it's not. It's it's. Would God do this to Himself? Um, not would He do it to somebody else? Mm. Yeah. So, so I, I and on the, the thing about you know sacrifice and blood and things. This may all seem dreadfully primitive to modern people, but it's on every you know it's on every page of the Bible. You can't. I, that, you'd you'd feel slightly differently if somebody said, "Look, I'm just done with Christianity because of this because I recognise that blood and sacrifice is so woven into it." But it's the attempt to maintain as we, when we're dealing with 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 you know competing theologies, which we can crudely characterise as, as, as liberal theologies, it's, it's the attempt to maintain some kind of Christianity that's been purged of these ideas of of blood and sacrifice and sin and wrath and things that, that's unfathomable to my mind. Okay, well, how does the Bible then speak of the atonement? Well, there's there's an enormous question, isn't it? And I suppose a, a, a simple observation that gets us started is to say that it takes a lot to tell the truth about the atonement in the Bible, in that there is a massive preparation behind the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so one of the most important things for us to say is that, that this doesn't come out of nowhere in the New Testament. Jesus doesn't come out of nowhere. And the, the language, the terminology, the theology that is used to describe his atoning death does not come out of nowhere. And our understanding of it must be the same as 
his understanding and as his apostle's understanding of it, which is that we understand it from the, the centuries or the millennia of preparation that the Lord was doing beforehand that we find uh, in the Old Testament. Um, and that takes us back, I suppose you could trace a route, for example, from, from, from 1 Peter 2 uh, to I, the language of Isaiah 53 and the, the, the language of sin or punishment bearing in Isaiah 53. And you then find that explained within the sacrificial system, for instance, though not, not only, but for instance, in Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement. And so that you, you, you have to trace that route, and that's how Scripture teaches us the atonement. It takes a long time and a lot of revelation to lay out this idea. But at the heart of it, I would argue, is, is the idea of, of substitutionary punishment, that the language that's used in Isaiah 53, and there, there are two nouns and two verbs used there, and which are used interchangeably elsewhere, basically for sin bearing. And so you can go to other places in the Old Testament, such as Leviticus 16, to say, well, how is this language used? And it is used for, for a sacrifice bearing that sin, guilt, punishment, that whole nexus in the place of the one for whom the sacrifice is made by means of a, a substitution. Now, now, of course, in the case of the sacrificial system, these are, these are animal sacrifices, which don't actually have the inherent power to atone. And in that sense, they point beyond themselves. Um, Hebrews 10.4, you know, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. But we have here a whole pedagogical, a whole teaching framework that the Lord gives us and develops, especially in the, in the Revelation at Sinai and in the tabernacle, to help us to understand the sin and punishment bearing work of Christ. Yes, I want to come on and look at one or two of the passages from both Old and New Testaments in a little more detail in, in a little mm. bit. But can we just back up and what, what does the word atonement actually mean? Sure. Well, in English, the word atonement, which I believe was coined by William Tyndale, is, is just a construction of, of at one meant. So it, it has the overtones of reconciliation in English and of making God and the sinner at one in the, in the sort of 2 Corinthians 5 kind of sense, I think of God reconciling the world to himself. Then if you push back into, into the Old Testament vocabulary, you're, you're, you're talking about a slightly different semantic field, as you call it, or range of meaning. And, and there it has connotations of, of covering, for example. Um, so it, it slightly depends on what language you're speaking. <laughs> um, and then you get then in, in the New Testament, you get the sacrifice of atonement language in Romans 3 as well, which again has slightly different nuances of, of propitiation and of bearing wrath. This is, yeah. this is one of the reasons why this gets, gets complicated, I think, is that you, you, you have different ranges of meaning in different languages I and mean, different ways of translating the same passages. But, so you have to pick them apart carefully. But you have the, the covering over. You have allusions to the, to, the, the, to, the, um, to the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat over it. You have the idea of propitiation or bearing the wrath of God and so dealing with it. You have the idea of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5. And this shouldn't alarm us because this is one of the wonderful things about it is it takes all of this to describe what Jesus did. Do you know what I mean? It's a, it's a, we shouldn't look at these things and think, oh, no, Scripture has so many different ways of speaking about this. And, and we're, we're still here talking about penal substitutionary things. We could go on and say Scripture talks about the cross as, as victory, as cleansing, as you know, all of these other things. Well, that's what it needs. It takes these thousands of years and all of this rich body of literature and all of this terminology to help us to understand the magnitude of what the Lord Jesus did. We better define uh, the, word penal, or the words penal substitution as well. 
In, in what sense is Jesus our substitute? So the Lord Jesus Christ is in one sense our representative, which is, a, which is an inclusive kind of concept. He's the head of the body so that what is true of him is true of us. He is in his resurrection justified, vindicated. He shares that with us. But he's not only our representative, he's also our substitute. And, and by contrast with representation, the idea of substitution is an exclusive idea. So whereas I'm included in what my representative does so that it comes to me and I share it, when there's substitution, I'm excluded. And specifically here, the idea is that I'm excluded from bearing the punishment of sin because he has done it in my place as my substitute. So that the specific feature of substitution is this exclusive thing, which means the very point of him doing it is that we don't have to experience it. That he is nonetheless so much our representative head that someone like John Owen, the great Puritan writer, could even say that, that, that we were punished in Christ. <laughs> so, so we are so one with him that, that you could say we're punished when Christ is punished. But in terms of our experience, we don't experience it. The whole point is that we are, we are set free from the experience of bearing the wrath of God because he endured it in our place and in our stead. So, so the key to substitution there is this, that, that it, it, it rescues us from it. He does it. He bears it so that we don't. Yeah. Has the doctrine of penal substitution always been the primary way of speaking about the atonement? No, I don't think it has. Um, and even that question is not a, necessarily a question that people were asking. So I think if you go back into the church fathers, I would argue that you find church fathers who express a penal substitutionary understanding of the cross. Now, inevitably, if you, if you take the sophisticated, developed expression of penal substitutionary atonement that you might find in a, a 17th century Puritan or Reformed theologian, and you put up against it what Justin Martyr says, or what Augustine says, or what Athanasius says, there are going to be some pretty big differences between them. The, 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 the later form is far more developed. But that's true of many doctrinal topics. You, know, you, don't, you don't say they didn't believe in the Trinity just because it's not as developed. You don't take the later, most sophisticated form and make that the test. <laughs> but do you find the idea in the fathers, and some of the fathers at least, that the Lord Jesus bore the curse, the punishment for sin, which was identified as the eschatological wrath of God, so that we would not have to, that he did that in our place, then I would argue, and he have argued in a number of places, that, that that is found, for instance, in Justin Martyr, in Hilary of Poitiers, um, in Athanasius, in Cyril of Alexandria, in, in Augustine, uh, and in others. But obviously, it's not in exactly the same as it is, form as it is in later authors. But you, you asked, is it the central, the major one? To some, they're not even asking that question. We're looking at sort of incidental comments in their sermons and in their expositions because their battle is not over the atonement. So in the way that the atonement became a, a war zone in the, in the 17th century and ever since, it wasn't in the early church. They're, they're very, very busy arguing about the incarnation and, and the doctrine of the Trinity and things. And we're, we're looking at sometimes almost asides that they make, which of course makes it all the more interesting. They can just assume this understanding as an aside. And then, and then you have other approaches as well and other, other, other ways of, of, of describing the work of Christ on the cross, which, which are, are true and biblical. For example, the, the view that it's a victory. And, and these things all swirl around with different degrees of emphasis in different authors. And, and the question, well, which is central, is a much later question in the history of the church. And yeah, yeah, but it, the, the, that's not the, the question is really, is it there? And I would argue it's there. It's there right back. 
Yes, I think the some people have suggested that the doctrine of penal substitution was merely discovered at the time of the Reformation, but I can't see that that's true. No, that's right, and the, and the, and that's rather amusingly, one famous opponent of it said that it was it was invented by Anselm uh, in the in the medieval period. But but I would argue Anselm doesn't actually even teach it. He teaches a substitutionary obedience. He teaches that Jesus obeyed in our place, not that he bore punishment in our place. So some people are even ascribing it to somebody as its originator who doesn't even teach it, at least not in his major work, Codeus Homo. But um, yes, it's definitely there in the Reformers. It's there in some medieval writers as well, and it's there in, it's there in Patristic authors too. Hmm. Okay, so it's got a long pedigree in, in the church. We're not yeah. talking about something that's just been concocted in the last 400 years or 500 years. We're not, though we are talking about something that has developed mm, and yes, received yes. a fuller account and a more mm. detailed account, as would be true on other doctrines as well. Yes, well, yeah. let's come on and talk about some of the passages of, in Scripture in, in the time we've got left. And I suppose a good way of tackling that is going to Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews. How does Hebrews 9 and 10 speak of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice as the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement rituals? One of the very interesting things in, in the book of Hebrews is the idea that the tabernacle in which the Day of Atonement occurred was an earthly model of a heavenly reality. And this is, um, this is not something that the writer of the Hebrews invented, um, because you find in the Pentateuch the idea that Moses is to make the, or have the tabernacle made on the basis of the pattern that he saw. So you have then that the Day of Atonement as a ritual carried out annually in the tabernacle involving uh, sacrifice uh, and scapegoat as an earthly down here picture. And then you have the, the, the real tabernacle, if you like, which is the holy of holies in, 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 in the heavens. And the idea is that the Lord Jesus Christ has done, has actually done, has done efficaciously what could only be done symbolically in the earthly tabernacle. And he's done it in the heavenly places so that he has gone in, that he has, he has made the sacrifice on earth. He's shed the blood on earth, which has actual atoning power, unlike the blood of the animals. Um, and he's entered then and gone ahead and prepared the way, gone into the, the heavenly throne room, the actual heavenly throne room, and, and therefore now is there interceding as our, as our, as our priest. So that, 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 it's, uh, that what's happening in Hebrews especially is this idea that, that we've got this fantastic earthly model <laughs> and then we have the heavenly reality that, that, that the Lord Jesus has himself completed, effected, actually effected. Yes, and the writer of the Hebrews is picking up all the Old Testament imagery. What's the significance of the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement? So the significance of the scapegoat um, is a is obviously that the, the idea of the carrying away of the removal of sins from from the holy camp of Israel, and then you've got this idea, which is it's a bit debated about where, what the scapegoat goes to. To Azazel is the language that's used, and it, people that argue about what it means. But whatever it means, it's pretty bad for the for the for the goat. It's what it's a. It could be a rocky precipice. It could be a, some people think it's some kind of spirit. Some people think it just means to destruction. But this kind of idea. Whatever is happening is that it's taking the sin away and it's perishing. So it's 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 the idea of the removal, the carrying away of sin, and therefore that the 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 maintaining of the holiness of both both the tabernacle and the people, so the, the, of, of Israel as a whole, really. 
And, and so that, again, is a picture of, of what the Lord Jesus Christ does when he dies outside like the scapegoat. Um, and so he he removes sin and impurity. These are slightly distinct concepts in the Old Testament. But, but for, for us, it's the whole the whole complex is dealt with by him taking it away and 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 outside dying that terrible perishing death that the goat symbolized. Mm. What's the importance of this this Hebrew word kippah? Is it kippah normally translated as made atonement in this context? Why has it been it translated so differently and understood so differently? I think it's a good question. I think it's because of the different contexts in which the term is used and therefore the, the richness of it. And so you, you have the vocabulary used in different contexts in the Pentateuch. And we need to remember there are all sorts of different types of sacrifice in the Old Testament. And so you're, 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 tri- you're looking at, at vocabulary that's used in different contexts in different ways. And I think that's probably, I mean, uh, you should get somebody else on to ask this question who's more of an expert in, in the Hebrew than I am. But, but my understanding would be that you've got a, you, you have a massive body of literature debating this and the different understandings, but that's largely to be explained by the different contexts in which the term is used. And that makes it difficult to come up with a single way of translating it, which fits every one of them. And therefore, you, you, you understand it slightly differently, depending on the context. Mm. We're, we're fast running out of time, unfortunately. But how, how do the New Testament writers, how do the gospel writers particularly speak of Jesus' death? How do they pick up on this language of atonement? Yes, yes. Well, that, that's a wonderful question. I think th- this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently and working on. And I, I think it's... It, I want to pick up on what I said earlier about how you have all of these centuries, millennia of preparation in the Old Testament. And it's very easy to read the Gospels and think, oh, well, what's some of this got to do with, or how does this relate to atonement theology and to all of these things going on in the Old Testament? But I think the way that they often relate to that is that they have an incredibly rich depiction of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. So that he is, the thing I've been working on today, in fact, is he is by being called the son of man, he is effectively being called the son of Adam. He's Adamic. And Adam suffers the exile and the curse and is cast out and lives under the punishment for sin. And that's why the son of man suffers, because it's very strange. Son of man, we obviously go to Daniel 7 as background for the title son of man, but the son of man in Daniel 7 doesn't suffer. He's, he's, he's in heavenly triumph. So people say, well, how can you, why does Jesus talk about the son of man suffering so much in the gospels? Because son of man is son of Adam. And Adam is the one who comes out and, and lives in exile. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. But then he's also, he's also depicted as a priest. Jesus is depicted as a priest in the Gospels. I mean, for example, I was reading today about ways in which he's depicted as a priest in Mark 1 to 6. And you think of some of the miracles and the way that he, the way that he undoes impurity. Mm, that his yes. touch cleanses. Mm, he cleanses mm. rather than being. So he's, he's, a ho- he's the holy one who's called by one of the evil spirits. So he's the holy one who cleanses. So he's a priest figure. Then he's Davidic king as well. Um, and there are all sorts of interesting things. That, so so, so that the, the gospel writers pick up on this idea of atonement from the Old Testament by depicting Jesus in all of, as all of these, he's almost a composite of all of these types that prefigure him in the Old Testament. Um, and, and therefore, he's the, he, he picks up on, on the servant in Isaiah. He picks up on the servant in Isaiah and, um, and, and fulfills him as well. So he's, he's all of this together. So it, it's an incredibly rich picture. 
based, I think, on the way that the Lord Jesus fulfills, I've been talking about people, but we could also, we could add institutions, objects from the Old Testament as well. Mm. All of this then comes together on, on and in him. Yes, we've just about run out of time, sadly. But last question, Gary, if we don't teach penal substitution in our churches, what are some of the pastoral implications of that? What are some of the pastoral implications of not teaching penal substitution? I think if we if we weaken our account of the atonement, then the obvious implication is that that either we're encouraging people to diminish the seriousness of their sins, or for those who are, who already know that their sin is serious, we're leaving them with a diminished assurance. So we'll either persuade them, <laughs> you know, we'll be successful in our preaching of, a, of an alternative account of the atonement and will persuade them that sin is not as serious as a penal substitutionary account of the atonement says it is, which, which imperils their repentance, or we won't persuade them of that. And so they, they'll know because of their conscience and as they read the scriptures, they'll know how serious their sin is. And because we've not told them that someone has borne all of their sin and guilt and punishment, we will leave them with a tragically diminished sense of assurance. Indeed. Dr. Gary Williams, Director of the Pastors Academy in London, thank you so much for your time. And uh, Gary's been with us talking about penal substitution and the atonement. Gary, thank you. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Gary, thank you so much. Thank you, Brent. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.